What's your style? My style? You can call it the art of fighting without fighting. Turn the breaker door! I am not a traitor, but I answer to the call Because within those patterns, there is something for us all Resistance, support, will we rise or will we fall? Cup and handles, triangles, flags reverse souls Watching trends, making ends or continuations Diversifying across markets, nation to nation Surfing inside channels, sector rotation Like hot coffee in the morning, give me momentum I'm not smart like Buffett or wise like Munger But I got the fire to invest, I got the hunger I got the will to learn, I got the passion to improve Teach me fundamentals, show me how to groove How to read a balance sheet, how to discount cash flow, how to project future profit, so many things I want to know, so many lessons to learn on the investor's tracks to success. That's why I punch my ticket on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and a continued happy financial literacy month to one and all. We love this month. If you're looking for action though, you are not finding too much in the overall stock market. That spring awakening has been kind of cloudy lately as investors are kind of waiting around for the next shoes to drop from corporate earnings and the Federal Reserve. All major U.S. indices closed lower last week with the Dow falling about a quarter percent to snap a four-week win streak. The Nasdaq fell just under a half a percent while the S&P 500 fell just 0.1 percent. In fact, the S&P 500 closed up or down less than 0.1% on three days last week. The last time that happened, September 2019 and October 2017. That's a really dull market. This place is dead anyway, man. This is no market for swingers. Even the big swingers are kind of staying away. According to B of A Securities' latest global fund manager survey, portfolio managers are as bearish as they've been all year. They are leaning into bonds like it's 2009, and they've increased their cash positions by 5.5% this year. They are worried about a lot of things, a credit crunch, hawkish central banks, and slowing growth around the world, to name a few. It doesn't mean they've abandoned stocks. They've been buying big tech stocks, which is why the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 have rebounded so aggressively this year. They've also been leaning into healthcare stocks and staples. Those are defensive positions, but they are delivering some offense. It's the playoffs, people. Good defense leads to good offense. They're also buying investment-grade and high-quality bonds at a record pace, hunting for yield, but maintaining those defensive postures. And that leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one, what about us, the little guys and gals out there in the market? We're still scared according to our latest survey back in March, and most other sentiment trackers show we are all still pretty bearish, but that hasn't stopped us from buying stocks and ETFs at a near record clip. According to Vanda Research, individuals bought a net $77.7 billion in equities and ETFs on U.S. exchanges in the first three months of this year, and that's outside of the regular contributions to our 401ks and other retirement accounts. Only the first quarters of 2021 and 2022 saw more buying activity on the part of individual investors like us, the bold, the beautiful, the brash. But are we being bright? Which leads us to number two. We may be buying, I know I am, but are we paying attention to some important signals out there that are trying to tell us something? The inverted yield curve is the most obvious and the spread between the 10-year U.S. Treasury and the three-month Treasury is still near a record high. But inside the stock market, the transports, including some of our favorite railroad stocks, are heading in the wrong direction. The Dow Jones Transportation Average, which tracks 20 of the biggest U.S. companies in shipping, airlines, trucking, and rails, has underperformed the Dow Jones Industrial Average by nearly 7% since early February. Dow Theory, one of the many gifts left to us by the great Charlie Dow, teaches us that for a trend to be established, indices or market averages must confirm each other. This means that the signals that occur on one index must match or correspond with the signals on the other. 
If one index, such as the Dow Jones Industrial Average, shows a new primary uptrend, but another remains in a primary downward trend, investors should not assume that a new trend has begun. And if we look at the small caps, which are super sensitive to economic conditions, they are not keeping up with the big kids either. The S&P Small Cap 600 Index, which consists of 600 U.S. companies with a market cap between $750 million and $4.6 billion, is basically flat this year compared to the 7.5% rise in the S&P 500. Are these warning signs about another potential correction or bear market, or just a reflection of a market recovering in different ways after last year's bear fest and responding differently to kind of a warped economy? Keep this in mind. According to Bespoke Invest, the S&P 500 has gone six months without a new 52-week low after a bear market. Only twice did it do this and go on to make new lows. That was back in 1946 and 2001. The other 11 times that happened saw gains, big gains. New lows from right here would be very, very rare. And number three, if the U.S. housing market is in a recession, you wouldn't know it if you looked at the stocks of U.S. home builders. Housing sales, housing starts, and building permits fell every single month last year, and they've just, just started to show some signs of life. Yet the bull is running amok among the home builder stocks. Year to date, Meritage Homes is up 37%, DR Horton, 19.5%, Pulte Homes, 38%, Lennar, 23%, Toll Brothers, 24%. To be sure, as our friends at the Wall Street Journal like to say, they are coming off steep declines in 2022, but the overall sector is performing like the housing market is about to break out again. Is it? Mortgage rates are coming down, but they're still above 6%. And are first-time homebuyers feeling flush enough to get into a tight market with the economy on thin ice? Let's keep an eye on the ETF XHB. That's the Spider S&P Home Builder ETF. It's up 15% year-to-date just as home buying season begins. Let's get set up for a very busy week ahead. 35% of the largest companies in the world will report earnings results, including big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Meta Platforms. Shares of Meta are up 74% this year, by the way, and the other tech giants are all up 19% or more. There's your relative strength right there. Their results, but more importantly, their outlooks for the rest of the year are going to be key to the market's momentum this week and beyond. Just under one-fifth of S&P 500 companies have reported earnings so far. Of these, 76% have reported earnings per share above estimates in line with the trailing five-year average of 77%, according to our friends at FactSet. However, the IT sector, which includes a lot of those companies, is one of six sectors expected to post year-over-year declines in earnings. Yet a lot of those stocks are rallying very hard. We're also going to get results from widely held and widely followed companies, including Coca-Cola, McDonald's, which is at a 52-week high, UPS, Raytheon, GE, Boeing, ADP, Visa, MasterCard, Verizon, T-Mobile, Intel, Exxon, and Chevron, among others. But we're also going to be keeping a close eye on First Republic Bank's earnings. It was at the center of the storm following SVB's collapse as customers pulled deposits, fearing the degradation of its balance sheet. 11 banks ponied up $30 billion to backstop it, but that did not stem the outflows. We're going to find out if those outflows continued on Monday afternoon. We'll also get the latest data on home prices this Tuesday with the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index for February, along with new and pending home sales for March. Are there really signs of life? Are those continuing? On Thursday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release its advance estimate for first quarter gross domestic product, that's GDP. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model estimate for real GDP growth, that's seasonally adjusted annual rate, in the first quarter of 2023 is 2.5%. That's down from 2.6% in the fourth quarter of 2022, but just by a little. 
We'll also get consumer sentiment readings from the Conference Board and the University of Michigan. On Friday, we'll get a key update on inflation with the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation gauge for the month of March. Prices are projected to have risen 0.3% last month, same as February. They were likely up 4.5% year-over-year, which would mark the slowest annual gain since the summer of 2021. This all leads up to the Fed's next meeting on interest rates, which takes place May 2nd and 3rd. Traders are now pricing in an 89% probability that the Fed will hike rates another quarter of a percent at that meeting, according to the CME's FedWatch tool. And there's a 68% probability that that hike will be the end of its rate hiking battle to beat down inflation. So this is a huge week coming up. What happens when an economist takes a hard look at the financial planning industry and applies an economist's view to it? What does that look like? Well, that's exactly what Larry Kotlikoff did. He's a professor of economics at Boston University, the author of Money Magic, an economist's secret to more money, less risk, and a better life, and also a presidential candidate back in 2012. He is also our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Welcome. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks very much. I was also a candidate in 2016, a writing candidate. Both times I did not win, turned out. Well, it's not an easy race to win, but the fact that you got in there in the first place is amazing. I want to talk about why you decided to do that in a little bit. But first of all, I want to ask you why, as an economist, who economists usually are paying attention to other things, you looked at the financial planning industry took a hard look at it and turned it upside down. What made you want to do that? Well, I work on a ton of different things uh, from carbon tax to macro to micro carbon taxation, banking reform, tax reform, inequality, really you name it. But part of what I started doing in grad school was working on personal finance, things like the adequacy of saving and insurance. And in, in the process of doing that, I noticed that, gee, you had to write to figure out whether people were saving enough and insuring enough, you had to figure out what they should be doing. You had to write down their problem. And that turns out to be uh, extremely complicated mathematically and algorithmically. Just It has to be solved with the right techniques. And, uh, and then I looked at what Wall Street was recommending with their different financial planning tools. And it was complete odds to what economics says to do. It's giving advice that no economist who actually cared about their profession would actually support or endorse. So we have a complete disconnect between 500,000 financial planners giving advice that has no economic basis and the economics profession basically being cloistered monks who don't talk to the public about what they should do. And I saw all that and I said, you know, what economics needs to do is actually come up with a software that people can use to get the right answer. So 30 years ago, exactly 30 years ago, I started a company. We have this tool called Maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com, very in inexpensive. There's another one called Maximize My Social Security. It just deals with Social Security that is a huge problem issue for people. They have to get that right because it's a major asset for most households. And these two tools, uh, can get you far along the way in terms of uh, having a secure financial life. But the recommendations, the suggestions are complete odds with what your local financial planner, if they're using conventional tools, is going to suggest. 
Yeah, well, numbers don't lie. And economists look at the numbers, but financial planners and advisors, they're looking a little bit more holistically at us in terms of all of our needs. But still, when you looked at all the numbers and then you looked at the nature of the advice, you saw a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense. Now, we talk a lot about behavioral finance at Investopedia and on this podcast and in the industry altogether. That's a big topic. Some Nobel Prize winners have won for their work in behavioral finance. What is it about behavioral finance and planning that doesn't match up with your economist viewpoint of the way we should be planning, investing, and saving for the future. So I'm going to take a strong position. I think behavioral finance is mostly bull****. Okay? I'm a professional economist. I'm a full professor at Boston University. I'm 72. I don't make that statement lightly. People have gotten Nobel Prizes in this field. And to call it bull****** is a strong, strong, strong statement. And I've got friends who are <laughs> got the Nobel Prizes, so I'm not trying to insult them. But... Basically, what economists have done here is they've come in and seen people make mistakes. They're undersaving, they're overspending, they're misinvesting, they're buying too little life insurance or buying too much life insurance. They're screwing it up left, right, and center. And then along comes a bunch of economists who say, hey, let's start a new field called behavioral finance and talk about households having bad behavior. They're screwing it up because they're badly behaved. They're myopic, they're irrational, they're irresponsible, they're financially illiterate, and let's write all kinds of papers and let's figure out ways to kind of nudge them to get to do the right thing, as opposed to realizing that what economics needs to do is just tell people what to do. Tell them what chess move to make when you're dealing with a, a chess game that requires your thinking 30 moves ahead. That's got that many interconnected parts that no human brain could possibly get it right. So why are we blaming people? You know, no doctor would blame somebody for having an infection. They would give them penicillin. And they wouldn't just sit around and studying infections. How, how sick do you get? How, much, how many people lose their legs? by maybe not washing their you know their infections as much as they should as opposed to saying here's some penicillin that's what i'm saying our profession needs to move from description to prescription prescribing what people should do Right. Very interesting take. So I get the take on behavioral finance and the advice industry, the financial planning industry. As you mentioned, it excused the planes. You and I are very close to an airfield down here in St. Petersburg, Florida. So folks, if you're hearing some biplanes, that's what it is. But also the planning industry, there's a lack or there's a misaligned incentive because of the business of financial services, the business of Wall Street. Now, a lot of it wants to do good, but a lot of it needs to make money and responds and is responsible to shareholders. What's your issue with the financial planning and advice industry from Wall Street? Let's just call I it I don't that. think you should be selling product and giving advice simultaneously. That's why my software company sells no products, takes no advertising, makes no recommendations of advisors, unlike all the other software out there. And furthermore, it's president, and you're talking to him, has never taken a salary, a penny of salary from his company in 30 years because, first of all, I prefer paying my employees than myself. I'm paid well enough by BU, Boston University. But secondly, there's a bit of a conflict there if you're trying to make money by giving advice. You know, Are you trying to do something that's just going to sell your product as opposed to giving the best advice? And I also use our software for research. We've gotten support from research support from the Sloan Foundation, the National Institute of Aging, which is part of NIH, from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. So this is kind of my project. It's not, I'm not coming at it from trying to make money, which is what Wall Street is doing. And that really influences 
underlies their entire approach to financial planning. It's fundamentally a bait and switch. I'm not accusing every financial planner, there's about 500,000 of them, of being untrustworthy. I think they're basically all trustworthy and forced to use tools that are geared towards product sales and being foisted on them by their Wall Street bosses. Point taken. The book, again, Money Magic, An Economist's Secret to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life by Larry Kotlikoff. It is the winner of the Cebu Best in Business Book Award, and I was a judge on that panel. I read the book. It's fascinating because not only did you create the software, but being able to write a concise book about how the software works, which is really a bunch of Monte Carlo simulations that an economist put together to try to answer these questions, that's no easy task. And it's an excellent read. We'll link to it in the show notes. But inside, you have some very provocative chapters, and you take some really hot takes that I want to get into, just a couple of them to get through some of these. So we talked a little bit about behavioral finance and your issues with that, but then some of just the general rules that we hear in the financial planning and services industry, like level up with more bonds as you get older. Why do you think that's a bad idea? Well, it's not what economics says. It says that when you reach retirement, now you have a very large bond that you've just been given, which is called Social Security. And now you've got some assets as well, that you've 401k and, retire, and regular assets that you've accumulated. And through time, you're going to be eating up those assets and becoming, and more and more of your total resources is going to be in this Social Security income, which is a bond. So you're going to become more like a bond rather than a stock. I have a friend, Moisha Molewski, a finance professor in, in Canada, who wrote a book, are, are You a Bond or a Stock? And the idea is, if you're a bond, you should be trying to diversify into stocks or even things out to put more into stocks. And if you're a stock, you should become more of a bond. So as you get older, you're running down your assets, and therefore you're becoming more of a bond, and you want to put more of those remaining assets into stocks. So actually, you should be investing relatively more, a higher proportion into stocks of your financial investments as you age. That's completely at, at opposition to what Wall Street will tell you. It's just standard economic theory. All right, here's another one that gets people's attention. You say marry for money. A lot of people say, don't marry for money, money, marry for love, marry for partnerships. You say marry for money, but get that prenup. Why is it so important in your, from your perspective or from the economist's perspective? The marriage market dates at least to Babylonia, where the only way you were allowed to marry somebody or to get a wife was to buy the wife at auction. That was a, a law. This was so that the rich people would have access, I guess, to the good-looking gals and uh, first dibs or whatever. And we still have a marriage market today. You know, uh, all these different dating sites um, are Match.com or Tinder, all this stuff is a marriage market. We're putting up our wares, our, our income, everything. So we have a marriage market and we might as well realize that we're in that market and that we should optimize and try and get the best deal we can for our what we have to offer because that's going to impact our living standard and our kids' living standards for the rest of our lives. So we shouldn't be naive about this. And that also comes with respect to getting married. Everybody goes to the altar. Not a single marriage that occurs has people up there who are going to say, well, I'm getting married thinking I'm going to get divorced. They all think they're going to be married forever. But the reality is that 40% or so or more are going to be divorced. Now, why would you want to get a prenup? That might make both sides feel uncomfortable. But on the other hand, it might actually keep the marriage together. Suppose, Caleb, you and I 
are 25, we get married, and uh, we agree that I should uh, stay home with the kids and give up my career so that you can maximize your career. And the only way I'm going to be willing to do that is if we get divorced, which is a high probability, I have some claim on your future, on your earnings that I helped you make. And with a prenup, you can set that into stone. So now I have the wherewithal to actually safely give up my career, have the kids, specialize in child production and care. You specialize in making money and we stay together for a long time or forever and things work out. If we don't have the prenup, then I strategically can't agree to giving up my career and then we have fights and then we get divorced anyway. So you see a prenup can actually stabilize marriages. That's one of the things I wanted to try and introduce the fact that there's you know some game theory here and that that needs to be uh, some economic game theory needs to be playing a role here in you, these kinds of, of conversations and, and joint decisions. Right. It's all about incentives. But just to be clear, I'm staying home with the kids. I'm taking care of the household if we ever get married. So let's just establish that right out of the gate. All right. One more. You say don't take early retirement. Why is that from your point of view, from the economist's point of view? Why does that make sense? Well, I've seen so many people uh, decide that, gee, I've had it. I can't work any longer. And I deserve to be retired because I've worked so long. And by the way, I'm going to die on time at my life expectancy because that's even what Social Security is persuading people is going to happen because they keep using the word term life expectancy in their website. Even though I've been screaming at them and the chief actuary and so forth for years, they still have this kind of ridiculous language. You have to think about the catastrophic event like we do whenever we deal with a risky situation like totaling our car or having our house burned down. We get insurance for the worst case scenario. So here are the worst case scenarios you live to 100. And in that case, if you retire early, you're going to be putting yourself at risk of running out of money, most likely. So, you know, if you work longer, you get to contribute more to your retirement account. You get your employer in general to pay for your health care. You get to... Uh, defer paying Medicare Part B premiums to keep your Social Security from taking it too early. If you take it at 70, it's 76% higher adjusted for inflation relative to taking it at age 62. There's so many huge benefits from continuing to work. Now, I realize that I'm an academic. I can say this. I'm 72. I'm working as hard as ever. And a lot of people physically can't do it. I'm not talking about that group, but we have the majority of people that retire in our country are able-bodied and can keep working. And somebody needs to deliver the kind of fatherly advice, the hard-nosed advice that calling it quits early uh, or even <laughs> my retirement plan is to is to retire a year after I die. Let me just say it that way. Yeah, that's good planning. And don't take your advice over to friends because they don't like the notion of extending the retirement age at all. It's not going well over there for Macron, who's trying to propose that. All right, let's talk about why you ran for president in 2012 and 2016. You got a good job. You got a software company. You have some, a lot going on. Why did you decide that you needed to run for president of the United States back then and again in 2016? Well, of course, we had you know Clinton versus Trump, so we had no real choice of sentient humans uh, running our country. No real potential for that. No potential for either party to address our fundamental fiscal problems. The country is fiscally broke. When you put all the off-the-book liabilities onto the books, the healthcare system is 
remains a disaster. We're spending 18% of GDP. Sweden spends 11%. They're ranked fourth in terms of outcomes. We're ranked 21st. We have a panoply of fiscal programs that are blocking the poor into poverty because if they earn too much money, they lose all these benefits where they lose their income tax credit. So we have a fiscal mess. We have an education mess. We have everything, everywhere you look, there are bipartisan solutions that can be provided, many of which economists have been talking about and developing that would save our country uh, so we don't become Argentina, which went from the basically the fifth highest per capita GDP country to now a developing country. Now, where it, it used to have 80% of our GDP. It's got 14% now. That's 100 years ago. We're on that path. We're a long-term path to Argentina. Meanwhile, China is growing like crazy. If we want to play, stay in the game here, we have to have intelligent policies. I felt economics economists had an obligation to tell the public what we thought needed to be done. So on healthcare, I talked to the top healthcare economists. I put together a 10-page plan, not a 20-page plan, fiscal reform, everything. If you go to larrykotlikoff.substack.com, you can start seeing some of these plans for fixing Social Security and the tax system, very simple plans that economists adhere to or agree to. So just like I think economists have an obligation to help people with their finances, we have an obligation to help the country with its policy choices and not leave it in the hands of politicians, not a single one of which has a PhD in economics. Well, you may run again, who knows, in a couple of years, we'll see. But I got to ask you a couple of questions we always ask our guests here. Who is your biggest influence in economics? I know you you come from a long school uh, of thought in your science, but who really influenced you the most? Ken Arrow is a very famous name in economics. Uh, Steve Ross, both departed. Franco Medigliani, Paul Samuelson. I had the opportunity to interact with these people who were really the giants of economics of, of their generation. Uh, Bob Merton, he's still a top professor at MIT, and to learn from these and so many other people and uh, to see what you know it is to be a serious academic, a serious economist, actually care deeply about the, the answer and not just get, getting an answer because... That's, uh, you know, just fundamental search for truth, which is what academia is all about. Well, great names on that list there. That is the Hall of Fame or um, among folks who are in the Hall of Fame. Final question. We always ask our guests this because Investopedia, as you know, founded on our investing in finance and economic terms. What's your favorite term, your favorite econ term or your term of the moment right now that just makes you happy when you hear of it or you think of it or you explain it to your students? I'd say real interest rates because everybody is mixed up with inflation between real and nominal things. That's called money illusion. And so we need to think about, for example, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. Every, everybody thinks interest rates are high. But after you adjust for inflation, the real interest rate, the real federal funds rate is only zero right now. It was zero about a year ago. They haven't actually raised it. They haven't actually engaged in any tightening. So unless we distinguish properly between things that are real and things that are just uh, nominal. Unless we avoid this money illusion, we're going to miss the forest for the trees when it comes to economics. 
Great term. We love that explanation too. Again, Larry Kotlikoff, the author of Money Magic, an economist's secret to more money, less risk, and a better life. Also, former presidential candidate, 2012-2016, and a professor of economics at Boston University. Thanks so much for joining the Investopedia Express. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Mr. Dre, who hit us up on Instagram, suggesting laddered bonds. We love that term, especially as investors pile back into the bond market after a terrible 2022. According to Dre and my favorite website, laddered bonds, or bond laddering, is an investment strategy that involves buying bonds with different maturity dates so that the investor can respond relatively quickly to changes in interest rates. It reduces the reinvestment risk a associated with rolling over maturing bonds into similar fixed income products all at once. It also helps manage the flow of money, helping to ensure a steady stream of cash flows throughout the year. We know a lot of investment advisors are using this approach these days, and you can too for your own portfolio. Check out the link in our show notes. Great suggestion, Mr. Dre. We won't forget about you, and you'll be getting a pair of Investopedia socks to keep you looking smart all spring long. We're going to let Bruce Lee take us out this week since he took us in. Here's the legend himself in one of my favorite scenes from Lee's classic, Enter the Dragon. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. Let's not miss all that heavenly glory this week, my friends. It's coming at us fast. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and special thanks to Larry Kotlikoff for taking a ride on the Express. We love it when someone challenges the norms, and that's what he's been doing his whole career. We'll link to his blog and his books and all the reports we cited on this show in the show notes. We're also fielding our latest investor sentiment survey. We want to know how the smartest listeners and readers on the planet are feeling about their portfolios and the economy. Are you bearish? Are you bullish? Or are you just trying to stay human? We'll link to the survey in the show notes and take it if you don't mind. It only takes about five to six minutes. We'll share the results with you in the coming weeks and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.